Well, it is a joy to be back together. Uh, it's good to see everybody tonight. And uh, we were just joking around before the service. I guess not really joking, but a lot has transpired since we last met, hasn't it? We've had Christmas, had New Year's. We've had a guy in a buffalo suit uh, storming the Capitol. So, uh, kind of crazy. But I know we're joking. It's actually sad state of affairs, our nation, and however you're responding to that, whether that's discouragement or despair or anger or whatever your emotion is. Um, just wanted to kind of open tonight to, to orient us a bit, just reminding us of, of a truth we know, that God is the one who removes kings and he appoints kings. So Daniel 2 uh, super clear, and among many other passages on that, that God is sovereignly placing kings. He's taking them down, putting them up. That includes our president, um, whoever he will be, uh, president-elect uh, Biden. So, But just, I, just, I wanted to illustrate this point um, in Daniel 4. So if you have your Bible, you can turn there. This won't be long. I'm just basically just going to read it. Nobody knew this principle that God appoints kings and he takes them down. Nobody knew this better than King Nebuchadnezzar. So he was the most powerful king on earth during this period. So imagine our president. Uh, That would be the equivalent uh, today. So King Nebuchadnezzar knows better than anybody else at this period that God is the one who installs kings and brings them down. Notice in uh, chapter 4, verse 29, just read this account. It says, At the end of twelve months, this king, Nebuchadnezzar, was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is this not great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. And you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. And he was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. Now notice this change to the first person. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High, And praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. And his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven. And among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand. Or say to him what have you done? At the same time. My reason returned to me, and and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and my splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lord sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. 
Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. And that last line, I, I, I love that. He who walks in pride, the Lord is able to humble. His hand isn't short. So we can know if he hasn't done that yet, he's going to. So the Lord will come from heaven to earth, and he'll reign here, and heads will roll, and he will exalt his people. And those are the promises that we have in, in Scripture. And so even now, while this worldlings are kind of jockeying for power now, um, in America, and there's pride on every side, the Lord is able to humble those who walk in pride. So our goal is to know this God. Uh, it's better, it's a great time, 2021, starting up. So know the Lord. And our goal should be to be increasingly faithful to Him and trusting the future and the consequences and whatever that whatever it's going to cost us, we want to be faithful to that kingdom and, um, and see... Uh, and not, not to shrink back at his coming, like John says. So, um, with that, why don't we pray, and then I'll give one quick announcement, and then I'll turn it over to you. Father, we rejoice that, um, that like Nebuchadnezzar, you have humbled us. Every Christian in here, Lord, knows that um, we have nothing good in us, and you have brought us to that realization. You made us eat grass, so to speak, um, until we saw that you are, you are God most high, until we saw that Christ is king. And, and yet, you've, you've paid our ransom, and you've forgiven us, and you have raised us up from the dead. You've given us new life spiritually, and one day you're going to exalt us even higher than King Nebuchadnezzar. You're going you're to glorify us, and we're going to reign with Christ um, at your right hand over all the kingdoms of the earth. And that is a grand vision. So, Father, in 2021, we um, just set our sights on you now here at the beginning of the year. And we thank you for this tremendous privilege uh, to know you. Thank you for this church. Thank you for faithful men like Rich who are going to bring the word to us. And we pray that um, as he teaches, you would speak through him. And uh, we would be encouraged and convicted and everything that we that you intend us to be tonight lord we pray for that thank you for this group thank you for the way that they uh, encourage me and um, and spur me spur me on to love and good works and i pray that tonight you you would just be pleased our joy would be full and we ask it all in christ's name amen so one quick announcement uh is on the 17th july (laughs) july january 17th i'm projecting out a little a little further than uh, we need to be. J- on January 17th, we're going to start Sunday school again. So it's going to be at 9.15 right here. So we're making it easy. So Sunday mornings. And um, the other piece that we should say is that the other... <laughs> Sorry, we've, we've had multiple iterations of what I'm trying to tell you right now. Our early service is going to start earlier. So it's going to start at 8, Right? So it's going to start at 8, then we're going to have Sunday school in between the two services, and then we're going to have a main service that starts at 10.30. Got it? So early service starts at 8, Sunday school in between, and Boundless is going to meet. We're going to meet right here. Um, it's going to be fellowship-oriented, at least in the beginning, and, and we're still meeting on Thursday nights. Yeah, so Thursday night's going to be the main event, 
just like we've we've been doing. Um, but we're adding a Sunday morning slot. So there will be more details to come on that. And Rich, you can fill in anything that I left out that you think they need to know. All right. Am I mic'd up? Can you hear me all right? Fantastic. Yeah, um, it's... Uh, it's been great doing Boundless on Thursday nights like we've been doing and like we're doing tonight. And uh, to add another dimension to that as we unfold and evolve through this pandemic and how to do things well and do them right. And really thankful for the counsel of our pastors that have really thought and prayed over this and how to do things. But yeah, in, in the time we'll be meeting here on Sunday morning and what Clay was leading to, I think when he interrupted him, is there'll be opportunities for ministry you guys are already signing up for children's ministry and things that will be opening up in the coming months here. And some of those ministries are coming soon where between the services, when there's Sunday school, we need workers for various things. One of those is children's ministry, which requires church membership. Um, coffee ministry uh, will be reignited again. So the Boundless Brew was a great hit. You guys, those who participated and those who drank the coffee like myself, all enjoyed themselves thoroughly. So uh, things like that, as well as other ministry opportunities, be available um, that we would uh, participate in as the boundless Sunday school time comes to a, an end during that time between the services. So lots of opportunities uh, to gather another time together and minister to our, our fellowship. So exciting times. Okay, well, it's good to be together again. We were, some of us are having a debate as to how long it's been since we were back together and I think we concluded three weeks, but, it, you know, that was two Thursdays we've been apart, but it seems like it's been longer than that. Maybe that means we miss each other. I don't know, right? It's been great to see faces, some familiar ones, and we'll be seeing many more trickle back in or maybe kind of wave, but they're just going to be like a, a tsunami coming in, I guess, um, as they come back to campus and back into Lynchburg, many of our friends that are still away for their break. But great to see you guys tonight, and it's good to be together. So. Well, we've got a new year on us, right? I think most of you guys know that, unless you really slept through that. I hope you guys have been getting some good sleep over the, uh, the holidays and all that. But, you know, when you get to um, this time of the year, and this is not our, our topic tonight, but one of the things we think about are New Year's resolutions, and, and hopefully uh, you guys can see that, or at least you hear about it, and you can't miss the advertising when we, when we hear about New Year's resolutions. And this was just um, uh, a... A list of statistics from the internet, at least according to this website. These were the top 2020 New Year's resolutions. And for those of you still on break and you're not into reading yet, there's nice graphics there that'll help you tonight uh, to get back in the mode here, uh, back into academia for those of you that are students uh, in the near future here. But look, look at some of those. Um, 50% of the folks that had a New Year's resolution had exercise more as one of their goals. And man, that's something I could really use. I mean, all this massive muscle you see here uh, could be toned in a little bit more. And that bicycle should be me riding uh, there in that one picture. Saving money, uh, 49%. People had that as a goal. Now, for you guys with holes in your pockets, you guys have a lot more outflow at this stage of life than inflow, right? I mean, so that might not hit your top uh, list of uh, resolutions. Eating more healthy, that's definitely not on mine either, especially after the holidays. Losing weight, that's a big one, of course, 37% of respondents. Reducing stress wouldn't be a wrong one. 
getting more sleep. Who's been getting more sleep over the holidays? You guys, you guys see, you're doing a, a New Year's resolution, you didn't even realize it, right, in, in getting more rest. And you see some of the other ones there, sticking to a budget, traveling more, except when there's a pandemic, right? Um, learning a new skill. I, I didn't really like the graphic there for focus on spiritual growth. They show what I, what I consider the Rafiki pose, right? I'm meditating there, <laughs> uh, cross-legged. Uh, but when you think about spiritual growth, I think more of a cross than somebody in a pose of meditation. New Year's resolutions. Uh, you know, we don't have to wait for the new year to resolve to do things. We go to the scriptures and we're constantly encouraged, even commanded, of things we must do and from our hearts commit ourselves to do. Wouldn't it be interesting to have a spiritual goal that just said this, Lord, this year, I want to sin less. I want to sin less. Now, a goal like that, which doesn't have to wait for the new year, if you think about it, could probably be said a number of different ways, couldn't it? I want to be more like Christ. Would that include sinning less? Absolutely. I want to look less like the world this year. Wow, that would include sinning less. I want a closer walk with the Lord, sinning less. I want God's will fulfilled in me in 2021. That's going to be fulfilled in part when we sin less. How about I want less me focus and more God focus? Sinning less. Now, you look at all these things, and you're just reminded of the importance of sinning less. I remember when I was taking seminary classes up in Grand Rapids, Michigan, back in the day, a few years ago, and uh, hearing one of the seminary students just plainly say this. This is the middle of summer, going up there for classes, and he's like, man, I just want to be more holy. And I, you know, that, that it struck me at the time, like, oh, well, that's refreshing, and I don't hear a lot of people say that. I just want to be more holy. And it stuck with me uh, all these years now since I traveled those halls in that school. Um, that stuck with me, uh, a refreshing thought. And that certainly would include this goal of well, as well, wouldn't it? Sinning less. In fact, look at a, a, a verse here that really I think is a nice summarization. I, I like this passage. It always kind of helps orient my heart or when I'm talking to others about, hey, what direction should your life be heading in? This is one of those kind of verses you kind of grab and just kind of hang on to that says, this is what the Christian life is all about. This is what I'm all about. If I'm a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, this is it. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one of each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Would not sinning less contribute to the fulfillment of this aim to please Christ? Well, why am I talking about sinning less so much? Because tonight we want to look at a lesson on repentance. We're going to look at the subject of repentance tonight. And the plan would be, if things go well, that we would do this next week as well. There's a, a follow-up lesson that will go with this. A little too much to get into one, one lesson. But a lesson on repentance. Now you're looking at that and say, well, that's a cheery way to start the new year, repentance. <laughs> that's not where I find my happy place when I think about repentance, right? I mean, it does seem a little intimidating of a topic, doesn't it? 
In fact, when I think about it, I, I, I get the sense in Christian culture that this is kind of like one of those old-fashioned doctrines, if you will, for an old-time religion that there really isn't much of a place for anymore. And in reality, true and authentic changes in my life that please God cannot occur without repentance. They can't. So what we're going to do is go to the Word of God tonight as the authoritative source of all of life and find out more about this topic and see what God has to say. Does he say it's something important? So what we're going to do is go through a number of different things. It's not I've structured an outline. Hopefully it makes sense as we go through it, and it's instructive for you as we do. But there's going to be five main points we look at tonight. And first is repentance is a recurring theme in Scripture, a recurring theme theme in scripture. We're going to start in the Old Testament, look at a few verses, jump over the New Testament, and then we're going to start picking apart repentance a little bit more and just see what God has to say about it. But first of all, in the Old Testament, there's an, an Old Testament word group, two primary verbs. To turn or return is one of those words, and the other verb is to repent, to repent. We won't get into the Hebrew and all that because I would just get in trouble. So we're going to look at a few of those verses that talk about this theme of repentance or turning to the Lord or returning to the Uh, from the Old Testament. And let's start with this great passage here in Isaiah, chapter 55, verses 6 and 7. Look at that with me as as I read here. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, and he will abundantly pardon. As you look at the passage there, really, what the prophet Isaiah is sharing is an invitation to salvation. And without using the word repentance, he communicates repentance and describes it, seeking the Lord, letting the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man's thoughts, and then let him return to the Lord. The idea of turning to God, seeking God, and turning away from your sin. And what we'll see over and over again as we look at these passages regarding turning from sin and turning to God is the clear and abundant message of Scripture on the character of God. Look at what he says there in that last phrase. And he, that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly What do we see that the character and nature of God for for people, and you see that described and, and given lavishly and fully and completely to those who turn from their sin. Look at another passage um, in Joel chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Yet even now declares the Lord, return to me. There's that word again, return. With all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning. And rend your hearts and not your garments. Return, there's that word, to the Lord your God. For he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. And he relents over disaster. Returning to me communicates the fact that God's people had left Yahweh, right? They're no longer in fellowship with him right now. They haven't kept their covenant with God that they committed to him to keep. 
So they must turn from their sins. Why? Because God will judge sin. There is no escape from the righteous wrath of God. He must judge sin, and he will deal with it fully. But see the character of God that comes here. He relents over disaster. So return to the Lord. Why? He's gracious. He's merciful. He's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He relents over disaster. He must judge sin, but he is compassionate, not wanting any to be destroyed by his righteous wrath. And then, as, again, as we look at uh, repentance and just the nature of God that comes out as he calls his people to turn from their sins. He says, say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. God takes no pleasure in judgment and, 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 the, and, the, and the perishing and the, and, the, and, the, and the utter righteous wrath that he must unleash on sin and sinners. But I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked but that the wicked turn from his way and live. There's life, there's promise, there's hope. It's hopeful language. Repentance isn't drudgery here. It's true biblical repentance is a path to joy. It's a, it's a path to the good life. It's a path of relationship with the God that's described here who's compassionate and steadfast and loving. Turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? Why choose sin when you can have relationship and forgiveness and experience the love of God in relationship with him? Turn from your sin and live. Well, the New Testament has much to say about repentance as well. And there's a primary word group here as well that relates and communicates this topic of repentance the meaning of those words are like this. It is to change one's mind or purpose. When you see that word repent, to change one's mind or purpose. One writer put it this way. It's a turnaround in your thinking that sets you in a new direction. A turnaround in your thinking that sets you in a new direction. It includes regretting, feeling remorse, regret, and let's look at some passages to get, kind of get us warmed up with this a little bit. Acts 3.19. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out. Here's two of the words in this word group. Repent and turn back. They're put side by side. Repenting, turning back, and the promise of forgiveness that comes with that. We'll get back to that promise in a little bit. Here's another one. Luke 24, 45 through 47. Then he opened their minds to understand the scripture. This is um, speaking of Christ. And Christ said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer on the third day from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. Luke uh, writing this. Um, what, do, what do we have here in, in this passage? Did you know this is the Great Commission as recorded by Luke. Now, when you think of the Great Commission, don't you usually think of Matthew 28, like me? Uh, go into all the world, make disciples, baptizing them, teaching them all I have commanded, right? And look how it's phrased here in Luke, stating really the same thing, that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from 
Jerusalem. It's calling us to the same task. But here, a Christ follower is called to repent. You become a Christ follower, you become a disciple through repentance. What's the Great Commission here? Repentance is to be proclaimed. It's to be taught. It's to be shared as an indispensable part of our mission. Well, I got, that makes me think a little bit. Usually when I think of the great things we see in the Great Commission in Matthew 28, I'm not thinking as much as, as I should as I look at Luke about the topic of repentance. So what does God want us to do with this? What does he want us to do about repentance? Let's look at another verse before we look at that. And that's from 1 Peter 3.9. Again, communicating the character of God. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. In the context here, which we weren't reading the adjoining verses, uh, there's a coming day, the day of the Lord, when God will judge all the, all the wicked on earth and establish his kingdom. And, and those who will not repent, those who will not bow and make Christ Lord, will suffer the righteous wrath of God. And it is an inescapable day, day for those who will not repent. But knowing that day is coming, here we see God communicate his incredible love and his profound patience for sinners as you look at that passage, right? Uh, he wishes that none would perish, that, but that all would turn from their sin and, of course, turn to him. And that, you know, as I thought about that, that's just, it communicated something to me. I, I, I claimed the righteousness of Christ. As I, I believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. I, 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 I proclaim and I, I, I call you before you today as a, I'm a witness, as, as my witnesses that I'm a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. But I, I look at a verse like that and I see that God's wrath is coming and he wishes that none would perish and I I'm reminded about how so much about me gravitates towards the sin that God will condemn. That he's, always, he's already put that, that righteous wrath on Christ, but how he will deal with it fully one day in the great climax before we have this, this new heaven and a new earth. And what does he do until that time, even patiently with me as a believer? He, he waits patiently for his own to repent, to turn from sin, and for those that don't know him to put their faith in Why? Why does he patiently wait? Well, part of it is because of his character. But God can say this with confidence because he has always already unleashed his righteous wrath on the Lord Jesus Christ himself, hasn't he? It's not just a coming day of wrath where people will suffer an eternal torment for their sins, but for those who will repent, he can tell them to come because Christ's sacrifice for our sins was sufficient. It's complete. It's done. And for those who will believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, repenting from their sins, what? That righteous wrath of God is fully absorbed already by the Lord Jesus Christ himself, by his death and his resurrection, his cross work, his finished work on our our behalf. Until then, God patiently waits for those to repent, turn from their sin and put their faith in Christ. So just for starters here, we see that repentance, turning, returning to the Lord, turning from sin is a theme in Scripture. So what we want to do is dig a little bit more into that, okay? 
and just get a better idea from a biblical definition. What is repentance? If it's that important, if it's part of the Great Commission, if this is something that God displays because of his righteous and good and loving character and his benevolence towards sinners that rebel and, and snub him at every turn, what are we talking about? Why does God offer that opportunity to repent and have forgiveness of sins? Well, what is repentance? What's all involved here? And I thought I would do like Clay often does. Let's, do, let's start with what it's not, okay? What is biblical uh, repentance? Let's start with what it isn't. It is not merely these things, okay? And try to get a flavor for it as we go through here. First of all, biblical repentance is not just an academic understanding that sin is wrong. It's not just intellectual. It's just not knowing right from wrong. Although it is a knowledge of sin that is essential. You must understand what sin is. You must understand God's righteous demands to some degree in order to repent. Biblical repentance is not merely improvements in my outward behavior. I think many times repentance gets a hard knock, if you will, because it's just understood as cleaning up your act and living in drudgery and, 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 and just kind of pouring ashes over your head in a corner and, and wailing and moaning and sorrow. Although, even though it's not merely improvements in my outward behavior, it is a change. Uh, change is an, evit- an inevitable outcome. So it's not merely improvements in my outward behavior, although change is an inevitable outcome of biblical repentance. Biblical repentance is not merely regretting the consequences of my actions. There's a lot of regret for sin, isn't there? Our conscience bothers us. Uh, Probably not as much as it always should, but when we have a knowledge of sin, oftentimes that burden of sin just weighs us down, doesn't it? And, And there's often consequences. The scriptures say the life of a sinner is hard. So there are consequences for our actions, but... Biblical repentance is not merely regretting the consequences of my actions, although a proper sorrow is necessary. And then finally, one of these not merely. Biblical repentance is not merely apologies to God and to others. It's not just, I'm sorry for doing that, I'm sorry for doing that, I'm sorry for doing that, this endless cycle, it seems. Although a biblical confession is required in true biblical uh, repentance. Wayne Grudem, one of several uh, theologians I enjoy reading, he puts things succinctly. John Frame would be another one. I learned that one from Clay before. You know, there's there's something about, uh, you know, Christy and I like reading, but we like reading good theology, so our excitement over the holidays is when John Frame's the Systematic theology came in. Are we, are we uh, Bible geeks or what? I mean, we are so excited. <laughs> this big, heavy boat anchor coming in and, oh, so much good stuff in those theology books. And, you know, Ray Grudem, he certainly has some great things to say as well. I, th- I thought he had a nice way of, of succinctly saying biblical repentance in these areas we just said it's not, right? Biblical repentance is a heartfelt sorrow for sin, a renouncing of it, and a sincere commitment to forsake it and walk in obedience to Christ. So look at several elements there of repentance. Heartfelt sorrow for sin, a renouncing of it, and then a, a, a sincere commitment to forsake it 
and that same commitment to then walk in obedience to Christ. Okay? So, really, if you look at that, it, it goes along with those New Testament words we said that communicate repentance in the New Testament. It's a turnaround in your thinking that sets you in a new direction. So let's dig a little deeper with our definition here. There are several necessary elements we're going to pick apart a little bit here. You know, you get into those seminary books, and they, 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 sometimes it gets a little overhead, and other times you're like, oh, that just makes total sense. Well, here's a few things that make sense, I think, in the three elements of repentance, and I think they'll make sense to you. Very simple, very straightforward. I think they make sense when you look at them in understanding what repentance is. First of all, repentance is intellectual. And this comes from Louis Burkhoff, his systematic theology, but very similar to others I've, I've read as well. It's intellectual. What does that mean? It's a change of view. It's a recognition of sin as involving personal guilt. It's a knowledge of sin. True knowledge of sin, the way the Bible says it is. If you listen to Romans 3.20, as I quoted for you, Romans 3.20, For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. We know a knowledge of right and wrong, of what God considers right and that which he considers sinful, through a knowledge of his word, a knowledge of the law. It's an intellectual understanding of sin. It has to start there, right? We need to know the word to know what matters to God and what doesn't. But think with me there. An intellectual understanding alone of sin does not constitute repentance. It may bring a a fear of consequences with no remorse or no hatred, and that's why in and of of itself, it's not repentance. Remember Luke, um, he would, the Gospels talk about Jesus always addressing the Pharisees, and, you know, the Pharisees were a group of people that knew right from wrong. They were the the religious, know-everything people of the day, and they were greatly respected for what they knew, But Jesus saw through that, that intelligence and knowledge alone will not save anyone. Jesus, what he says in Luke 5, 31 and 32, Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. You get that? You know, the Pharisees knew everything, but they didn't understand their need. It's one thing to know. It's another thing to understand your need. And why, that's why this next element will be so important when we get to that. One thing I want us to get from this, before we leave this intellectual understanding of sin, is just beware of the attitude that loathes having your toes stepped on when you hear the word. You ever kind of feel that way like me when you're perhaps out of sorts with God? And you just, want, you just want to hear some positivity, right? I mean, I just want to hear some things that make me feel good about myself. <laughs> I, you know, I, I know enough of what's going wrong in my life. Can I just hear something good? And uh, obviously, we're interpreting things incorrectly. If when we hear the word, we're only hearing something bad. But, you know, what I really appreciate about you guys, and as we gather together from week to week, is your desire to really know what God has to say, whether it hurts or not. That's the attitude God's looking for 
in a repentant individual is, Lord, just give me what you have to say that you may teach me and show me in the way that I should go. You know, our purpose for gathering at church is really not to feel good about ourselves. It isn't about that positivity approach to life or to achieve self-fulfillment and our personal goals. It's about the glory of God. And if we think about it, my sin is that number one threat and the number one means of destroying the glory of God in my life. So um, intellectual, we first had to understand what God's word has to say. Secondly, an element, a necessary element of repentance is the emotional aspect, the emotional element. This is a change of feeling, okay? It's not completely feelings-oriented here, but there's a sorrow. When one understands that their sin was committed against a holy God, a sorrow, a biblical sorrow, a godly sorrow. So it's this change of feeling manifesting itself in sorrow for sin committed against a holy God. 2 Corinthians 7.10 says this, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. What does Paul say there? There is a godly grief that produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, a godly sorrow. In other words, it's a recognition of the shame and disappointment before God, confessing honestly before him how we've fallen short of his glory and and either angered him or disappointed him in our sin, not meeting his righteous standards. It's an understanding that we have violated God's nature and God's standards. Now, we, it's, it's, it's all hopeful language, first of all. Godly, godly grief is hopeful. There's a good end to this, whereas worldly grief is not. We need to distinguish that. Um, godly sorrow and worldly sorrow, we'll do that if we have time tonight. But we can't be dogmatic about how this sorrow is revealed or how it's shown. And I think it will reveal itself in different ways with different individuals. But if we understand that we've truly violated God and his standard and disappointed him and alienated ourselves from him, when we see all these things of his, of his, of his love and his character and what Christ has done for us at the cross, there is a sense of loss and sorrow when we commit sin. This is different from a worldly sorrow. Remember the sorrow of Judas in the New Testament? Uh, Judas uh, betrayed Christ, sold him for a few coins of silver, and what was Judas's response afterwards? He, he went out and hung himself, didn't he? He was in deep sorrow and regret. But that was a worldly sorrow. He was a son of perdition. That wasn't godly sorrow that leads to salvation. That's part of true repentance. Judas was not repenting of his sin that violated a betrayal of Christ, like we saw with Peter, right? Instead, he was deeply remorseful over the consequences of his sin. And that alone is not biblical repentance. So just feeling sorry in and of itself is not necessarily godly 
sorrow. Ultimately, a grief over one's, one's sin is merely a worldly sorrow if it's not followed by this next element. And this is how you know if it's godly sorrow or not. You do something. There's a change. There's a turning. It's something volitional. This is this change of purpose, okay? This inward turning away from sin and a disposition to seek pardon, to seek cleansing from God. I know it's sin intellectually. I feel it's sin. I feel sorry for how I've disappointed God. And I take that to a point of a change of purpose. This is a personal commitment against sin. It's wrong. I know it is. I'm confessing that before God, and now it's a personal commitment against it. True repentance brings you to a change of direction. Okay? You have to have this. This is a determination to abandon sin and stubborn rebellion and to just surrender it all to Christ. Whatever his will is, And whatever sin it is, no matter the cost, we change our purpose. Isn't this where the rich young ruler fell short? You know, in today's Evangelism 101 classes, you think Jesus had the perfect candidate to win a soul, if you will, right? And the rich young ruler comes, what do I have to do to to be saved? You know, how how can I enter the kingdom of heaven? And, uh, you know, follow follow the Ten Commandments, follow the commandments. And he's like, I've cut them all, right? And that's obviously a lie. Uh, didn't understand things, so Jesus probes a little bit more. Give, give and sell all your possessions, because the Lord knew how much he owned. And what was the response of the rich young ruler? He was sad. He was sorrow. But he never had that change of direction, right? He knew what was right and wrong. He emotionally, right, felt sorrow. But eventually, it showed itself for what it was. It was a worldly sorrow and not a godly sorrow because he didn't do as God said and follow him. So it eventually comes out in your direction, okay? I told someone tonight that we'd have one Charles Spurgeon quote. Uh, He's a very quotable man. And if you've read any of Charles Spurgeon, wow, what a great preacher he was. And he has many quotable things and deep things to say that are Beneficial, And I thought what he said here relates to these elements of repentance that we just talked about. Repentance is a discovery of the evil of sin, a mourning that we have committed it, and a resolution to forsake it. You see those three elements there? It's a discovery. I know it's sin. Okay, so I know it in my mind. It's a mourning. Hey, we've committed it. I've sinned against a holy God. And now it's a resolution to forsake it. I never want to do it again. Those three things, that change of direction included. It is, in fact, a change of mind of a very deep and practical character, as he goes on to say, which makes the man love what once he hated and hate what once he loved. Does that make sense? That's repentance. The thing that the sin that we cherish, we want to we want to cling to, we want to hold on to and, and desperately keep and desperately find our satisfaction, perhaps our identity in, those things we hide from others and and keep to ourselves, whether they're secret sins or things we even don't even understand are there. But wow, when you come to the point of understanding it's sin, and you come to the point of understanding this has disappointed God and violated his righteous standard, 
and, and, and cross the path of the God who, who died for me and gave everything for me. It makes the man love what once he hated and hate what once he loved. It's that change of direction, re- repentance. Okay. Um, turn to Psalm 51 for a second. Go to your Bibles there, whether you've got that on your phone or you have the written word. Let's just look at this for a moment from the heart of David. You know, if you, if you ever camp out at the Psalms, you'll see so much of what the, the, the heart of the psalmist, which is often David, and his response to sin, his regret over sin, and his um, desire to renew his relationship uh, with the Lord. And you can see as we look here, just the few, first few verses, we'll see these three elements of, re, of repentance, right? Uh, look there, just starting at Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. You see this, this heart that's been hurt, this sorrow. Have mercy on me. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. This heart of confession before God, going and turning to God is the only one that can do anything over this weight of sin that, that David was experiencing. I know, see that knowledge? I know my transgressions in verse 3. And I realize now my sin is ever before me. Why does he mourn? Because against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. I deserve judgment. I deserve your wrath. I deserve the consequences for my sin. I was brought forth in iniquity, and I delight in truth, he goes on. And look at verse 7. Purge me with hyssop, I shall be clean. Wash me. What does he long for in verse 8? Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Burdened with sin. He's, can, can, can you sense the feeling there? And I'm, I'm not advocating a feelings-oriented uh, type of Christianity, but you can't look at this and not say, wow, this guy was pretty broken over his sin. It meant something to him. And what are you seeing? You're seeing the heart of repentance here. There was a violation. It wasn't, very, it wasn't a flippant thing, was it? It wasn't just an academic thing. He hurt because of what he knew he did against the God he loves. Oh, he says there, he, he demonstrated that in verse 9. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out my iniquities. And what he's going to say, create, create in me a clean heart, O oh God, and renew a right spirit within me. And boy, uh, look there at verse 13. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. See that about face? Lord, I want to follow you again. I want to, I want to be heading in the right direction. I want to serve you again. I don't, I don't want this burden of sin that, that separates me so far from you and live under that, that weight, you know, Purge me, make me clean, create in me a clean heart, restore the joy of my salvation. And with this idea, I'm going to be back on track and serving you again. That's the heart of repentance, okay? If you are working on, wow, I need a heart of repentance like that, I encourage you to go to Psalms. Camp out there a while. Go to Psalms like 51, Psalm 32, many others. Uh, I know our, our pastor... He does three psalms a day in his just reading. He does Proverbs as well. But uh, Pastor Farrell, uh, on the first day of the month, will read Psalm 1, 31, 61, and 91. 
All right, did I get that right? And then 121. So second day of the month, Psalm 2, 32, 62, 92, 122, right? Can you tell I'm an engineer? Is that how I do my math? I'm doing okay so far? So you just keep adding 30 each of those, and when you go through the month, you'll be through all the Psalms. Um, but what a great way to refresh your mind with these kind of thoughts and this heart of confession like you see here and repentance from, from David. Okay, let's keep rolling along here. Uh, we'll go to another point. As we look at our points of repentance and our lesson here, repentance, repentance is a recurrent theme in Scripture. We looked at a biblical, biblical definition of repentance. Now let's, let's look at a few other nuances here that are important. When we talk about repentance, there is an initial repentance required for salvation. An initial repentance required for salvation. Repentance and faith are inseparable in Scripture. And both are required for conversion. Okay, Now you, you're thinking there, well, why might the necessity of repentance for salvation, uh, I mean, it just it seems a little out of place, doesn't it? Doesn't that seem even unbiblical? I mean, we're used to good terminology like faith alone and Christ alone, right? But um, a requirement for salvation, for repentance, it just seems kind of like works-oriented, doesn't it? And it does if you have an improper view of repentance. But a biblical review of, a biblical view of repentance absolutely includes repentance as a requirement for salvation. To help us understand this a little better, let's look at conversion. Back to Wayne Grudem, a theologian. Conversion, salvation, conversion experience, converting from a sinner to a Christian, it's our willing response to the gospel call in which we sincerely repent of sins and place our trust in Christ for salvation. Repentance, and trust, repentance, and faith. Turning from sin and embracing Christ. It's part of that turn. Okay? Conversion is a spiritual turn. It includes a turning from sin, which is repentance, and a turning toward Christ, which is faith. Look at what Jesus said in Mark 1, 14 and 15. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying this, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Turn from your sin and turn toward Christ. Okay? Several writers put it this way. Repentance and faith are opposite sides of the same coin. Okay. If you have a coin, let's just call it conversion in this analogy, one side of this coin is repentance, and the other side okay, is faith. Repentance, a turning from sin. Faith, a turning to God. So in genuine conversion, there's a turning from sin that points you in the direction of Christ. And not only points you, but it is in true conversion, you then put your faith in Christ. Why do we turn to Christ? It's because of our sin, right? Why, if, if we don't know what to be saved from, why do we turn to Christ? 
if it's just a recitation of a prayer without an understanding of one's sin that we're turning from, then that's not conversion, is it? Or if I'm just turning from sin and trying to live a righteous life without turning and trusting Christ by faith, that's just works-oriented living, right? It's not salvation either. It's not conversion. It requires both. In genuine conversion, a turning from sin is what points you in the direction of Christ. And what one writer said, it's, it's a repentant faith. We're talking about a repentant faith here. Another passage. Speak, you know, Paul speaking here. He's defending himself uh, before Agrippa, and he talks about his salvation experience and what God has called him to do. And here's his mission, to open their eyes so that they may turn, speaking of the Gentiles, that they may turn from darkness to light. Look at the turning there. Darkness to light. Turn, repent. From the power of Satan to God, that they may receive the forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by what? By faith in me. You see it both there? Turning from darkness to light. The power of Satan to God. From, uh, uh, and, and, and to open their eyes in these things, that they may receive the forgiveness of sins, what? By faith, by faith. Repentance and faith brings conversion. It brings salvation. Um, I think about this, and I, I, I must say, I'm, I'm reminded of how important it is in how we share the gospel with those we we come across. I remember one time um, when I was newly saved. You know, sometimes when Pastor Farrell talks about um, when he was first saved, he was kind of going all over the place sharing the gospel. And in a, in a smaller way, that was me. I mean, it did, all over the place, as I was gaining boldness, I was, I was learning to go to different places, share the gospel. And there was this one hangout place in front of this grocery store in the parking lot where, you know, just the, all the, the cars from around town would kind of get together and everyone would do their drugs and smoke and, you know, it was just basically this big plume of drugs uh, just kind of hanging over this parking lot and it was the place to go to share the gospel. So we're you know, going there with a few other friends, we're sh- passing out tracts and all this stuff and I, I always remember this young lady that came up and read the tract and talked about what they needed to, you know, talked about what they needed to be, do to be saved and as they, as they read it and, they, and then she just looked at me and said, as she's taking another puff out of her cigarette and whatever else she's doing, and just in a real crass way, do you mean all I have to do is say this prayer and I'm going to heaven? You know how a tract has that kind of that sinner's prayer at the end? And it struck me, and I, I'm trying to remember what I said, because I probably didn't know what to say <laughs> when she posed that question, but I never... It, I was reminded of that situation. Here was an individual that the way they were presenting themselves really weren't understanding from just reading those statements that there was a sin they needed to understand first and turn from, okay, an inward turning, an, an inward understanding of their sin and, 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 and understanding the offense that is to God in order to have a proper understanding of what it means to turn to Christ. It isn't just this easy believism kind of hocus-pocus prayer and then you're just kind of like, well, I'll just, I got my, my luggage here, all my sin, and I'm just going to come to Christ and say this prayer and everything's good. Um, but at the same time, we're not talking about a works righteousness, right? It's a turning from sin and a recognition. It can intellectually, sorrowfully, and volitionally 
And then an understanding, I need Christ. I need his forgiveness. I need, his con- I need to confess my sins uh, before him. I was just um, sending a note to an unsaved friend that was reaching out to Christy and I, young lady from um, just another country and a Hindu. And so nice when we hear from people we've met here in Lynchburg and the different colleges that are here and they go on and, and the gospel that we share with them and keeping in touch with them. And this whole message was weighing on me as I'm responding to her because I wanted to share some things about the gospel. And this is the way I put my, one of my responses to her. So we are so thankful that Christmas reminds us of God's love for us in sending his son, Jesus Christ, to die for our sins and rise again to be the savior of the world. I'm so thankful that this hope is offered to all who turn from their sins and put their trust in Jesus as their savior. So it wasn't a long explanation, but I I must admit, I wanted to say more than just put your trust in Christ. I wanted them to know God cares about your sin. And you must understand your sin to understand your need to turn to Christ and what he offers you in his finished work on the cross. So let's continue to go here. Repentance is a recurring theme in scripture. It's a biblical definition that we looked at. There's an initial repentance required for salvation, but there's more than that with repentance. There's a frequent repentance required for a believer's growth and holiness. It's not just an initial repentance. Well, I'm saved now, so I don't need to worry about repentance anymore. No. This is a regular part of the Christian life. It's part of the sanctification process that Clay talks about frequently in Boundless. It's the progressive denial of self with an ever-increasing dependence on God. And part of that is turning from our sin. I thought Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, I love this passage. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Can you relate to that? That sin that just doesn't go away and wants to stay attached to us and wants to weigh us down from the things God calls us to do. What does he say? Lay it aside. Turn away from it. Renounce it. Right? Put it off. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. That's part of salvation too. Now I've turned. I volitionally am turning, not from serving myself and sin, but as I renounce that, turning to do what God has called us to do and run the Christian life while we're looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. It reminds me of Ephesians 4 when Clay was teaching us to put off the old self and to put on the new, right? What are we doing? We're putting off sin. We're putting on Christ. It's turning. Turning from sin, turning to Christ. The Christian life is a bunch of U-turns. I'm going this direction. I hear a message from the Word on Sunday. Wow, I've sinned. I knew better, but I've been sinning. Wow, I start thinking about it. I start talking to other people. I feel, I feel out of place. My conscience is pricked. I I've been living this life and I've been enjoying it. Now I realize it's wrong. I've wronged God. I, I, want to, I, wa- I want to go a different direction. I want to go God's direction. I want to be in fellowship with him again. I, want, I don't want this between myself and him. I don't want this weighing down on my mind. I, I want to think more clearly about Christ and what he wants me to do. I want a heart of joy that wants to serve others and, and, and not myself. And what do you do? You, you're making a U-turn. 
I'm putting off sin, I'm putting on Christ. I'm putting off sin, I'm putting on righteousness. U-turns, 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 okay? I thought Tim Challies put it this way. When we think about sins to confess and repent of, no sin is too small to confess. The first principle. No sin is too small to confess. There aren't really any petty sins. Christ died for all sin, right? And any petty sin can turn into a life-dominating sin. And knowing how it grieves God to sin, wow, we're always looking for ways to release ourselves from sin, repent of it, turn from it, confess it, and turn to God in, in more righteous and godly ways, being more like Christ. Tim Challies also said this, no sin is too great to damn us. No sin is too great to damn us. There is no sin so great that it will separate us from God and relationship and fellowship with him. It will not damn us. It will not fully separate us. Why? Because there's a sufficient substitute that has already absorbed God's wrath fully for us, for all who have repented and believed, right? We are fully forgiven. It isn't the amount of repentance that keeps you saved. God's already done that. God's already fully saved those who have repented and believed in him in that initial conversion. But what do we do now in our love for him, in our desire to please him, in our desire to thank him for what he's done in becoming more like Christ? We turn from sin and we turn to Christ in more and more progressive ways, becoming more like Christ. You know, sometimes I think we get the notion that we think something's wrong with us if there's sins to repent today. Now, there is something wrong with sin. But don't, don't you kind of get the twisted feeling like I do that, you know, I have to repent again, and today I have to repent again. In fact, I'm doing this multiple times during the day. Why did I do this? Why did I think that way? Why did I not do this when I should have? And, but that's the Christian life. This is normal Christian living. God's more concerned about those that aren't repenting than those that are. We have to recognize our sin and continue to turn from it, turn from it, turn from it, turning to Christ in faith, right? Knowing he's already finished the work for us, okay? If we had time, we'd read Romans chapter 6 with just this glorious, wonderful truth, so hopeful, repentance leading to joy, to freedom, to escape from the deceitful bondage of, of sin. But with a few minutes left here, let's just uh, close with a, a few thoughts on this last point, and maybe we'll cover more, a little bit more of this next week. There is a counterfeit repentance when there is no changed behavior. Now, next week we're going to be talking about the fruits of repentance. You know, we haven't t- been talking a lot about the actions of repentance yet, because actions that come out of repentance are the fruits of repentance. They're the outflow of biblical repentance. And one way to gauge whether or not you have a true repentance is the way in which you end up living, okay? It's a natural outflow. If I've truly changed my mind about sin and renounced sin and determined in my mind to turn a different direction, guess what? It's going to show up in the way you live. There'll be fruits, and we'll be, we'll be talking about what those ways, those fruits look like from a passage in Scripture Uh, next week. But true repentance is always associated with a change of thinking that always results in changed behavior. 
I mean, wouldn't it be kind of strange, wouldn't it, to say I've repented from drunkenness and I choose not to go to the bars, but I'm still hitting the party scene and I still need someone to drive me home? Uh, you know, to say I've repented and yet to continue to live in that particular sin doesn't demonstrate a repentance at that time. Now, someone can repent for some, some something and fall into sin again later, and you need to repent again? You need to repent again? Yes. But eventually, the authenticity of your repentance is shown by your fruits, the way you live. In Matthew chapter 3, John the Baptist, in his ministry of baptism as a forerunner of Christ, said this, In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, and he said this, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is Matthew chapter 3. And in verse 6, it says, They were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. And then in Matthew chapter 3, verse 7, he, John says this, But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, John said, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? He's speaking to the Pharisees and Sadducees who had their reputation and really had no desire for true repentance and truly following the forerunner here and what he was as people as he was leading people to repentance and sins as a forerunner to Christ. This is what he told them in Matthew 3 8. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Why do he say that? Well, fruit is an external evidence that visibly portrays an internal reality, right? So it is one thing to say, I profess the name of Christ. It's one thing to say I've repented from sin. But when there's no change in behavior, that's something we have to check up on and really validate the reality of that repentance. We'll talk more about the fruits of repentance next week. What if I don't have this heart of repentance? Um, what do I do? What if I'm just apathetic about sin? I, yeah, I know right and wrong. I know the Bible pretty well. I hear it from Sunday to Sunday, but I don't feel that apathy. I don't feel this uh, desire to turn. There's some things I'm really clinging to here, and I enjoy doing what I'm doing or what I think. And I, as I look tonight and see how important repentance is, I, what do I do? I'm not, I'm not, I'm not feeling that. I, where do I go? How do I respond? What do I do? First thing I want you to recognize is this. In 2 Timothy 2, 24 and 26, it, it states that it's God who grants repentance, even though we're responsible for doing it. It's a work of his grace. Okay. It says there that God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. 2 Timothy 2.25. It's a work of God. So what do we do? If it's God that has to work in me to feel the same way he does about sin, that I might have that heart of repentance and turn from him and, and receive the joy of forgiveness and everything God promises by being in right relationship with him. I would recommend you go back and consider again Isaiah 55, 6 and 7. For one, seek the Lord and ask him to do a work in your heart. Remember Isaiah 55, which we read earlier. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Call upon the name of the Lord. Seek him. I'm just going to read parts of Psalm 32 to you. 
Listen to the psalm. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For night and day your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. See, that you sense that burden, that weight of sin, that alienation from God. We've been there. We've all been there, haven't we? So he sought the Lord. I acknowledged my sin. I didn't cover my iniquity, he says in verse 5. I, I will confess my transgression to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they will not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble and surround me with shouts of deliverance. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, it says in verse 10, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Ask for a heart like David had. Ask for God to see sin, for you to see sin like he does. Ask for that same repulsion, that same reaction to sin like David had there in verse 32 when he was ready to turn and receive the blessed forgiveness that comes from the asking from God himself. May that be an encouragement to you as we think about the new year upon us to sin less, to be more like Christ, and to learn to be like him by repenting and turning to him by faith. Let's close in prayer. Thank you, Lord, for your word that teaches us what it means to have a relationship with you. Thank you for just being so, well, just giving us a revelation that shows us our sin, how much we need you, and how we can have a fruitful, growing, abiding relationship with you. We see so clearly, Lord, it comes through an understanding of our sin, a sorrow for it, a turning from it in our hearts that leads to a fruit of, of, of godly living and change in our life that we desperately want to be, as we desire to be more like you. Help us to turn and put our faith in you each and every day, Lord, and as we face the sin struggles in our lives. And may we find ourselves more like you in the end. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.